So have you ever wondered why the Bible is so confusing to understand? Or why Genesis is at the beginning and Revelation is at the end? You ever been curious as to why there's a New Testament and an Old Testament? Or what does that even mean? Well, I'm sure these are all questions that some of us have all asked at some point. So that's what Bible school is all about. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to talk about the semantics of the why, the how, and most importantly, the who. If you'll ride this out with me, we're going to go cover to cover through the Bible and dig deep and see the mysteries that God has revealed to us through this beautiful love letter that he calls his word. You've just tuned in to Bible School with Reverend Kojo. What's going on, good people? And welcome to Bible School. I'm Reverend Kojo. I'm so glad you decided to join me today. Now, today, we're in Revelation 14. Um, and when I tell you things are about to get along the way, we're in the last little piece of this parenthetical passage, uh, chapter 14. Next time, we're going to dive into 15 and 16, and we're going to see those bowls of wrath start to be poured out. Um, but this time, we're in the last little piece of that parenthetical passage. Remember, we started, and for these last couple few chapters, we have been in what we call like this pause. When we started with those seven trumpet judgments, we got to six, um, and then there was like this pause of sorts, and then like this that seventh trumpet judgment is going to bring about those seven bowls of wrath. And boy, are we still we're in for, we're in for it. Like I, I've been saying the last set for several weeks, we are in the thick of it. We are in the thick of it. We're no longer in the patty cake portion of Revelation. We're not in the stuff that could make us feel warm and fuzzy. We are um, we're in the stuff that a lot of people don't understand, and so. Uh, here we are. We're in chapter 14. We're going to dive into the scripture. I'm going to do my best to make it come alive for you. And we're going to roll with it like it comes. All right. Ver chapter 14, verse one, we find these words. It says, and I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him, 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now the lamb, of course, is Jesus. Let's just go ahead and clear that up really quickly. Um, and I, I want you to understand we're preparing to enter this outpouring of the wrath of God. Okay. Uh, this is this is the only place in this book that Mount Zion is mentioned. Okay, I want you, I want you to also point notice that this these are the same hundred forty four thousand from chapter seven. That these are the the twelve tribes of Israel that have twelve thousand um, that will be sealed. And I want you to notice that from chapter seven to chapter fourteen, we still have one hundred forty four thousand. Not one is lost. Everybody that was sealed in the beginning is brought through to this point. Okay. I want you to understand that these folks, these, these Jews that, that are left here, that are sealed during this period, they have come through this tribulation, um, and are still heading into the bowls of wrath by miraculous power. Um, this is God. This is God sealing and being faithful to the promise that he made. Okay. I want you to also think of this as similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we took a little bit of time last time and talked about them, um, but how they were sealed in the fire. Um, and how they were in the path of destruction, but they were protected. These, these 144,000 are not spared from chaos, but they are preserved through it. All right. Um, and, and like I said last time that ministry, that is a parallel to the end time, to this place that we're studying today. I just want, I want to make sure that we're making the, the connections because the canon of scripture, our Bible is not, is not a document that is just full of stories for haphazard, um, 
telling it you know they're not just stories that have good outcomes they're not just stories they're they're events that god has been alluding to the end and the great climax of the world from the very beginning that he there that everything that is there is there uh, on purpose um, on purpose there is not a dot or a tittle that is there uh by accident or by happenstance everything points back to this place and that they all interweave together uh for us to to make it but i want you to think this be thinking this way we know shadrach meshach and abednego and daniel were preserved through the fire this 144,000 are being preserved through um the the tribulation and although we are not going to be here during this period i want to ask you how are you being preserved today you know what is it that's keeping you and protecting you and and, and i would argue that it's jesus it's Jesus. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is, that is holding things back. And and a lot of us like to look at, oh, heinous things happen. Somebody just, I just got on the phone. Somebody was asking me, um, well, if God is allowing, how could we believe in a God if these things are happening? And, and I want you to understand that the presence of evil, evil does not negate the presence of God. The presence of darkness does not negate the presence of God. The presence and the reality of evil doing what evil does does not mean that God is not in control. And it surely does not point that evil would have more power. And, and we, we, we're seeing more and more that Satan wants you to convince you of that. If he can make you believe that all that you see and all that you experience is by result of a lack of God's power and, 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 a, and a, a result of his power, then he can convince you not to believe. I want you to understand that God is yet in control and that even through fire and even through uh, harm and even through chaos, that God is yet able. Okay. You know, if we stopped at the boy, the Hebrew boys being thrown at the fir- in the fiery furnace, if we stopped there at the fact that God allowed them to be thrown in the fiery furnace, then we would say that there's not a God, but you would miss the glory of that story. The fact that it was not that they got thrown in is that that's not that evil was allowed to seemingly prevail. It is what he did in the midst of the storm. Okay. It's what he allowed to happen, how he did indeed get glory that we see his fingerprints. It's it's not that children are being taken from home. It's not that children are being killed, but it's what is God doing in the midst of that story? Satan has not prevailed. And he will never prevail. And there will there is coming a time worse than this that he is going to seem like he's prevailing, that it's going to seem like he's winning. But I need you to understand that you cannot look at this picture from today. Because if you can't look at the picture from completion, God is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the God who wrote the end from the beginning. And so when we see the details unfolding, a lot of time our faith gets wavered. A lot of time we cannot understand why a loving God, a a gracious God, a merciful God would allow these things to happen, but you can't see the whole story. And when we make presumptions and assumptions on God about God based off of what was or what's happening, we don't have, we don't have the privilege of seeing the end. You got to hang out till you see what the end is going to be. Now, also out of this verse, I want us to pull and I want us to notice Zion because Zion is going to be very, very prominent. Okay. Now look at Zion, because if we, we could study, we could study Zion throughout every time that is mentioned throughout the Bible and we could draw a comprehensive study. And I, I want you to see what God does, but I even want us to, to twit, to whittle it down to just the Psalms. And that's just how amazing he is because there are 30 places in, in the Psalms where he mentioned Zion. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that in, in the Psalms, every time he mentions Zion, we see an allusion to what happens here in, in revelation. Okay. 
We, I, w- I want you to see that. We're going to go there. I want you to think about it like this. Psalm 20. In Psalm 20, we see an, an allusion to the deliverance of the 144,000. If you read carefully, you'll see it. In Psalm 48, the kings of the earth gather against it. They are gathering against God. And 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 and, and it's similar to what will happen in Armageddon. Uh, we're seeing, seeing an account made. Also, there in that particular chapter, there's a woman in travail. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds like uh, Revelation 12. Uh, we, we look at Psalm 74. There are singers that have been purchased just like the 144,000 speak of themselves here. We're going to get down to that in a couple of um, verses. In Psalm 76, the kings of the earth are cut up from this attack. That sounds like what we're walking into. Psalm 102, a time for all uh, this is referred to, okay? Uh, Psalm 110, we see Melchizedek mentioned, who preceded Abraham and Moses, which talks about this consummation of all things and, and all, all of that stuff. I want you to look at Psalm 132, the Lord chose Zion. Now, I want you to notice he didn't choose the UN, the US, or the Palestine. He chose Zion. Now, I'm going to just pause. I do. I want, I want you to see some other stuff. I want, I want you to see some stuff. Um, Psalm 133. Now, hold on to 132 real quick. Psalm 133, Israel's united. In Psalm 133, uh, one Psalm, th- Psalm 137, not only is Zion mentioned, but Babylon is destroyed. Now, I want you to kind of remember that Bab- Babel or Babylon was Satan's headquarters from the beginning. But in Psalm 133, we see God uses, he chose Zion to be the place that he uses. Okay, Mount Zion. Now, Psalm 146, you're admonished not to trust in princes and the worst is yet to come. There's going to be this coming world leader. We dealt a lot with him last time. We talked about, about some of his traits and some of the things that he's going to come. And, and could he be two people? We dealt with that as well. Um, but, but in Psalm 146, we're admonished not to trust in princes, not to be swayed by the, 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 the kind words or, or all of this, this, these things that make us feel good, the things that we think that we need. All right. And, and what's interesting to me is that all of, all of these little verses that are these chapters that I just called out to you that are, that are seemingly, um, similar to Zion, it's all summarized in Isaiah two. Okay. It's Isaiah chapter two. Uh, let's start reading the verse two. And it shall come to pass in the last days, don't that sound familiar, that the mount of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills and all the nations shall flow unto it. And many shall go and say, come ye and let us go up into the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go for the law and the word of the Lord from the pruning brook shall not lift up the sword against the nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now we like to talk about that. Neither shall they learn war anymore. We see this pointing to Zion as the place where God is going to rule, where Christ is going to rule. We're seeing Zion as is going to be the place where that throne is going to sit. And and he says, I want you to notice he looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, the lamb, Jesus stands on Mount Zion and, and the sealed of God are there. Okay. Now I'm, I'm always kind of amazed, but I, I want us to, to, to before we, we deal with that, let's go to Psalm two. We're building the case. Okay. Trust me here. We're weaving and we're bobbing, but we're building the case. Psalm two. And you know, Psalm two is, is a trialogue of sorts between the father and son and the Holy spirit. If you read carefully, you'll see who's talking to who. Okay. It says, why do the heathen rage and people do a, imagine a vain thing thing? The Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed mm. saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. 
Then shall he speak unto them of in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. And the Lord said unto me, thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give the heathen for thine inheritance and the other, other uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and thou shalt dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, he perish, yea, he perish from the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in God. So he's, he says, he tells us here in verse six that he's going to set his king upon the holy hill. I think that that's literal. And I think that is literal, not only because of Psalm two, but also because we see all of these other Psalms and all of these other verses pointing to that. And then he's, he's talking about, there's going to come a time when he's, when, when, when they will study the war no more. So in, in other words, the war that is coming, the war that we're anticipating, the, the things that are coming out, out of this, I want you to, I want you to understand. I want you to understand that he, he's preparing the way for a day where we don't have to study war, which, which tells us that there's a climactic war that's on the way. All right. Now I want you to also see, um, that he says that he shall speak unto them his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I want you to also understand that we're walking into this period of God's wrath. So we were in the trumpet judgments. Okay. And the judgment and judgment and wrath are not synonymous all the time. Judgment is God trying to get you to turn. Wrath is his punishment. Okay. Judgment. Well, a lot of us think judgment and wrath are the same. Judgment is a desire for you to turn so that he does not have to pour out his wrath. And because there are still men on the earth that did not turn, that when the trumpet judgments were poured out, now the wrath of God is poured out. Now, I want you to remember the trumpet judgments were a third of what the bowls of wrath will be. Okay. And so when he, when he holds judgment, he holds himself back. When he pours out wrath, when God pours out wrath, it's bigger, it's worse, and it's, it's not, it's not retained. We talked about the Holy Spirit being the great retainer. When he pours out wrath, it's not retained. It's not, it's not a small portion. It, it is for the entire, uh, the entirety of whom he is, he is pouring out his wrath on. And he's been holding up wrath until this point. God has been gracious. He's been merciful. He's, he's tried to be understanding. He's given opportunity after opportunity. He's given thousands of years for men to turn their hearts. Turn your heart unto God. Turn your heart. Your, your, your forefathers messed up, but maybe you'll, you'll get it right this generation. They rejected me this generation, but maybe you'll get it right this generation. And see, what's interesting to me is people have issues with God because he doesn't pour out wrath and they want answers and they want reciprocity for the bad things that happen in their lives. And they don't understand mercy. Okay. They don't understand mercy. And because they don't understand mercy, they don't understand how much of God is holding back and what is yet to come. You know, uh, you know what he's going to do, how he's going to pour things out. They don't have a clue. Mm, they don't have a clue. Okay. Let's move on. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. Boy, that sounds familiar. And as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of the harpers harping with their harps. 
the voice of many waters. That's a title given to the Lord in chapter one. That's also something we see in uh, the Song of Solomon, the voice of many waters. Verse three, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne. And before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now, throughout the songs, we see this, this thing, and they sang a new song. Sing a new song unto the Lord. Sing something new. And, and I often, whenever I teach those passages, I say, if the Lord is singing a new song, if he wants a new song, why, why, if, 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 why would we bring him something old? If his mercy is new each morning, why are we bringing him something? Oh, we ought to sing a new song. There ought to be a new praise on our lips. Um, but only the 144,000 could sing it uh, because of their unique experience. It's a new song. It's something fresh. But they are realizing just how much their redemption costs. They're realizing what God has done for them. And while I don't believe that we're in this group of 144,000, um, and we don't have their unique experiences. I got a question for you, and I want you to take a moment to think about it. Do you sing of his praises? I'm not talking about in church, and I'm not necessarily talking about um, at worship, praise and worship time. But I'm talking about when it's just you and him and you are in the, in the room. Do you sing of his praises? Not because you like the tune of the song, but because you love the God with whom you're singing to. Do we sing of his praises? Because I want you to think about this. Although we're talking about this 144,000, only the redeemed could sing the song. There's a song that only you could sing if you're truly redeemed of God. And it may not be the song of the 144,000 because you don't have their experiences, but there is a song that only you can sing. And since there's a song that only can, you can sing, are you really redeemed? Do you sing of his glory? Do you sing of his majesty? Are you um, taken up? in honor and in, 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 in amazement with who he is and what he does. If the answer is no, we need to reevaluate your loyalty. Who do you worship? What God do you serve? Because in, in our praises, when our praises are sincere, he inhabits them. He makes his rap, his, his residence in our praises, you remember the tabernacle, and that's why I keep saying you need to do a study of the tabernacle. We'll get to it on this podcast, but it may be years. Um, you need to do a study of the tabernacle because the tabernacle um, literally means to be enwrapped with. When God had them build a tabernacle on earth, it's because he wanted to commune with his people as they worshiped him. When they made their sacrifice, it was a form of worship. And when the, when the priest took the prayers of the saints into the holies of holies in the form of incense, he was tabernacling himself with the prayers of the saints. When they brought the blood before the altar, he was tabernacling himself with their sacrifice. It is God's desire to be tabernacled with his people, to be wrapped up and, and, and wrapped up and, and tied up and tangled up in his people. It is his desire that your praises come come down. So when we praise God in spirit and in truth, he tabernacles, he wraps himself up in our, in our being. He holds us tight and he, 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 he dwells there with us. He inhabits the praises of his people and that's scripture. So although we're not talking about the 144,000, you know, that's who we're talking about in this verse. I've got, I want to ask you that question. Do you sing of his praises? Because if your heart is never compelled to sing of his praises, you need to re-question your salvation, re-question, -re re-interrogate whether or not your walk with him is real. Re-interrogate whether you are truly a believer. 
ask yourself, do I sing of his praises? Because when you do sing of his praises, there are some places and some things that he's brought you out and brought you through that's in, that's shored up your faith. That there's a song that only you can sing. There are some things God has done for me that can't nobody else in my house sing of. Or my parents' house. Because don't nobody live with me. There are some things, there are some places that only my experience with God has shored up. And we have a point, we have a we have a relationship so that when when I think about those things. And how he brought me over and how he made a way and how he did these things and how he opened the door and all of those things. When I think of those things, there's a praise that only I can sing. Testimony only I can tell. Okay. But, but verse three, we're still in verse three and they sung it as if it were a new song and they sunk it before the, the beast. And they sung it before the elders. So not only did they sing a new song, not only did these 144,000 sitting in heaven, not only did they sing this song, but they sung this song. And they sung it unashamed. They stood before the four beasts. They, not the, not, now we're not talking about evil beasts. We're talking about those creatures that worship or tending to the, the, the holiness of God. And they sung it before the church, the elders. And they worshiped there. It didn't matter that the other people around them could not tell the same testimony. It didn't matter that nobody else was there. It didn't matter. It, they, they, had, they had gotten in the presence of God. And because they had gotten in the presence of God, it didn't matter who, who else couldn't relate. I think that's a message. That's a message. That's a message to us. Even though our plan is not to be in that group and we won't be singing that particular song, that's a message that you ought to sing your song no matter who is listening. No matter who is watching. Sing that song, sing it loud, sing it proud, sing it bold. Verse four. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the lamb. This idea of them being virgins it's troublesome to a lot of folk, okay? But I want you to remember that these are special times. And so we can think, we, I want us to think of this virginity du duplistically. They may have been actual, like, virgins. Like, that might have been a thing. They might have actually been virgins. They might be actual virgins. I don't know. But I also want you to remember um, that, they, that that virginity uh, might have been them staying away from idol worship, okay? You know, you think the church is also being the virgin bride, and even though that these are not the church, um, the church is supposed to be the virgin bride. And, and, and so the redemption, you know, we could think of it, we could think of it like that. We just, you know, we, we may, we may be able to, and that may not be plausible. They might've actually been physical virgins, but I also want you to just be thinking, opening, opening your mind, thinking about that. Um, uh, and, and I want you to understand that that's why Laodicea, he threatened the spit Laodicea out of his mouth. Okay. He threatened to spit Laodicea out of his mouth because they weren't the virgin bride. Now he, he, and, and, and they were so, you know, loosey goosey. They go with the wind, whether I go, whether I don't go, it doesn't really matter. All of those things. Um, and many of these people think these are the brethren that are mentioned in Matthew 25. I'm not positive. Now I, I'm t I'll tell you, like I just told you, I'll tell you what I think about it. 
Um, but but we can think of it like that. But they're they're undefiled with women for their virgins, and these are they which they follow the Lamb. Whether so they're they're they have when they got it right because it's one hundred forty four thousand. When they got it right because Israel's heart wasn't right. When they got it right, they cling to God. They clung to God like nobody's business. It, if, if, if Christ told them to, it was time to die, they were ready to die. These were the, the redeemed among men. These guys, when they got it right. And I think that's another message. That's another message. Because a lot of times we are so quick to throw people away. We're so quick to throw people away. But there are those that when they get it, they'll hold on and they'll cling. And they'll, they'll hold on for dear life. Um, one of the deacons at my church, when we, we did park ministry regularly and we don't do it as regularly as we used to, um, this lady who had been saved came up and she said, you know, if you want to get saved, what you're going to have to do is find one of these Christians and cling onto them for dear life and hold on like nobody's business, call them and spend time with them. Because if you hold on to them, they'll lead you to, to, to being holy and lead you to being righteous. Now, that's, I think, that's an, an admonition on us that we got to actually be right. We got to actually do right. But I want you to notice in that same vein and in that same way that these folks that who had it wrong, they followed the Lamb wherever He went. They clung to Him. And I just want to ask you the question, although we're not these people, are you clinging? Are you clinging? You know, are you, could you, could, are you one of those people that could live a day without Christ? Are you a person that like the desert needs the rain? I need you. Like the deer panteth for water. I need you. Like, like the ocean needs the, um, the sand. I need you. Just like the morning needs the sun. I need you. Are you, are you there? Or are you just kind of like, oh, well, Christianity is a thing that I do. It's an identity that I have. Or are you clinging to it? Like your, your veins need the blood. All right. Verse five. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They weren't taken by the law, the lie, the lie. They weren't taken by the lie. Now, let's read verse second uh, Thessalonians two. And then I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. Second, second Thessalonians two, verse nine. We find these words. It says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of up, up, uh, unrighteousness is them that perish because they receive not the true love of truth that they may be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion and they should believe a lie. Now, various scholars make uh, presumptions about what this lie is. You know, what is this lie? They, they, uh, a lot of scholars believe that it may be evolution or that the, or the big bang, uh, or that you can get into heaven by being good lies that are, that would be convenient to, to accept if you don't want to receive the truth about God. Um, I'm inclined to believe that there's likely to be another more detrimental lie that is yet to come. But I'm going to say this, that the more I watch world affairs through the lens of this book, I see Satan setting the stage. I see Satan setting the stage. Uh, he's building up, getting science, the science community to back him. He's getting, he's building up these lies about evolution and Big Bang and, and saying you're more revolved or you're more, yeah, revolved, no. 
you're more you're more evolved. I'm sorry, you're you're more evolved if you believe that um, evolution is a thing or that the Big Bang happened. And and y'all think about it. let's be real. Let's be really really honest. The Big Bang is dumb. Like I don't know how you could believe that science that that could happen. That the Big Bang, short of a god causing a Big Bang to happen, how could a Big Bang cause these intelligent creations? to function at the height and the way that we do. And then we would evolve into intelligence. My dirt doesn't evolve into anything but dirt. Okay. So this, this idea of evolution is actually a a big bang or evolution is, is, is a, is a sad one. And the other thing is that when people come to believe that you can get, get into heaven by being good, that's another delusion that would have you living a life any kind of way. Um, and saying that you don't need Jesus, you don't need Jesus because they've come to the, I don't need Jesus to be happy, but you do need Jesus to have joy. And so if he can give you a, a, a rip off and never expose you to the purest thing, never expose you to what the truth may be, never convince you of the truth, you'll be living a life off of knockoffs. And the truth of the matter is, is I see it this way. My entire childhood, most of my childhood, I grew up on canned green beans. Okay, I liked canned green beans. And I was not a fan of fresh green beans until I tasted them prepared well. And then the more of the real green beans I ate and the more my bowels began to fall into order, I'm sorry, the more that my body began to react better by eating fresh spinach and fresh green beans and eating fresh things, that I can't hardly put processed stuff in my mouth without being disgusted. I grew up eating little Debbie cakes. Now I put it in my mouth and I'm just like, oh, this is not real. I grew up eating as, as allergic to it as I am. I grew up eating McDonald's and Taco Bell. And I tried to eat some Taco Bell the other day. Well, shoot, it's probably been a year now. It's not even the other day. I ate some Taco Bell. And other than the fact that it made me itch. And that's a whole other example. Other than the fact that it made me itch. It made me, I just didn't taste good anymore. It, it wasn't real. And so because it wasn't real and I was, I was used to what realness tasted like, I didn't like it. If Satan, could, and that's what he does. So he convinces people to accept the knockoff and to never experience the real thing. And so, but he does that not only in the world, but he does that in the church. He's convinced us to play church. He's convinced us to, to neglect the power that could actually happen, that life change could actually happen, actually happen, and that we could actually have insight and we could actually thrive. We could actually live right. We could actually have uh, providence and, and all of the things that God promises us. We could actually have those things. We've come to such a place where he's not left us. He's left us where Satan wants to convince you that, that there, there's no, nothing better than this. And for the few that take the opportunity to try, and I'm not talking religion, I'm talking try Jesus. For those who take the time to try Jesus, then they get exposed to what realness feels like. And the knockoff will never do. But when you've been surrounded by falsehoods and knockoffs, you lose. And that's, 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 that's an indictment on the church because a lot of us have allowed falsehoods and knockoffs to come in and take power and to run our churches. We've allowed other things to rule our decisions 
And so a lot of people never get an experience with Jesus Christ because they can't see Jesus Christ in anybody. And so by the time they go to the world, it seems better, but they never had a true encounter. Never had a true encounter. Yeah, um, discipling, working on discipling a young lady who is agnostic. And she is formerly Catholic. But her experiences in the Catholic Church never pointed to Christ. You know, she dealt with all these rules and, and she had a rough home life. Nobody really lived for Christ, never saw he, the power of his might, never understood how a loving God could allow such things, never had the tough questions answered and never saw the true love of Christ exemplified. Till she met, met me and, and another and a mentor and friend of mine. And then all of a sudden she said, man, there's something weird about this because these are Christians and they actually seem to love me. There's something weird here because they're Christians and, and it seems like there's real power in this Jesus thing. But my experience with Jesus has not been the same because she never had a true experience with Jesus. What happens is Satan works to take away the truth. And so when in verse five, when he says in their mouth was no gal and and that before they were no fault before the throne, but they never believed the lie. They never believed the lie. But the way that we keep people from believing the lie is that we live in truth. And that's a problem most of us don't have. That's a problem most of us don't know how to do. We know how to live partially in truth. But most of us don't know, understand how, how do we keep people from believing the lie is that we live in truth. And we love in truth and we give in truth and we, we, we have our existence in truth so that when they encounter us, they encounter Christ. He, they can't encounter Christ if Christ isn't living in you, if he's not all over you. And I'm not talking about blessed and highly favored, talking about dressing like church and wearing long skirts. I'm not talking about always having to do, do certain things, can't go to movies. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is to live in truth, live in transparency, live in honesty. So that when people encounter you, they see not only you, but they see God and his grace multiplied and magnified. All right. Like I said, I think there's a bigger lie coming, even though there are plenty of lies out there. I think there's a bigger lie coming. Verse six. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now, this is the first of the force of the seven angels. We're about to encounter seven angels. Um, now, he's talking to those who dwell on the earth or they tabernacle with the earth. These are citizens of the earth. These are not us. All right. These are not us. These are people who are enmeshed in the world system. These are people who believe in the earth. These are people who believe that what they see on the earth is their thing. Now, most of us see the gospel as a cliche from 1 Corinthians 15. All right. But I want to deal with this idea of the gospel, okay? Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, and we, we find, we find we're going to read just a couple of verses. Um, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel that I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which is also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which... I, which I also received how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scripture. This is the gospel we've been commissioned to teach. 
Okay. This is when we say the gospel, that's what we think. But that word gospel means good message. Okay. And so I'm inclined to believe that this, um, that this gospel, that this, uh, angel is proclaiming may not be the gospel of grace, but that does not negate it being a gospel. Okay. Um, because there are other gospels in scripture. There are also false gospels. Paul speaks of false gospels and calls them an anathema or, you know, a vehement liar. Uh, we, we keep, if you want to look at that, you can go to second Corinthians 11, four or Galatians one, six. Um, but we see gospels throughout the good messages all throughout. Now there have been fake good messages. Um, you know, there have been, uh, of course, good messages, uh, all over. Now I want you to think of this in revelation 10, we see the mystery of God is completed. For the word of the gospel or the evangel, okay, is, is there as well. That's a whole nother set of good news. That's a whole different gospel, all right, that doesn't negate the gospel of grace that we have been commissioned to teach, all right? That does not negate that, but I want you to understand that the word gospel does not just mean that gospel of grace. It means good message, all right? Um, so we have to ask the question, which gospel is being preached? Now, the gospel is being proclaimed by an angel that is indestructible, and we've been commissioned to preach that gospel of grace, uh, and this angel has been has been charged to preach fear for fear of God. Now, I want y'all to just think about it, because I think all of us have probably seen the folks on the side of the road with the, the signs um, that, that try to f scare people into salvation. Um, the, that fear God message is rarely supposed to be preached by men. Um, it fairly gets a draw. It rarely, rarely gets a draw that fear God. It is grace that draws us. That's why he's commissioned us to preach grace and to preach it accurately. That's why he's commissioned us to preach the gospel of grace, because that gospel of grace is once the gospel of grace is preached, then you make a, you fall in love with Jesus. And once you fall in love with God, Jesus, then your fear of God begins to be made manifest. We see this angel proclaiming this, this indestructible angel proclaiming the fear of God in a time where people reject God. And I think he sends an angel to preach it at a time that to preach God, because even when he sends those two witnesses that they be, because they reject the truth about God so bad, they kill him. And three days later they get up and they ascend up to heaven. So I I'm, I'm willing to bet that this fear, fear of God gospel preached on the side of the road or from, from flying amongst the people. I think there's a reason that it's coming from the angel and it's not, it's, it's, it's not the same as the gospel of grace. Does it negate the gospel of grace? No. Does it negate this gospel that this, this, um, this angel is preaching? No. I just want you to see that there is a difference that sometimes we make this gospel. Um, we, we make it, we make it the umbrella and it's not necessarily the umbrella. It's important. This gospel of grace is important. That's what we ought to be teaching people. If we're trying to bring people to Christ, that's how we do it. But I do want you to also notice that this fear of God is seldom what God uses to get to draw men. Um, in authenticity, that is. All right, moving on. Verse seven. Say with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the, and the fountains of water. Now this is a gospel of creation. All right. Like in Psalm 19, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You know, it's only in recent years that science has taken an anti-God path. And when I say recent years, really, really recent years, you know, there was one of the greatest minds to walk the earth, Giannis Kepler, uh, back in the 1500s. 
uh, saw God as a great mathematician whose mind could understand the precise mechanics of the earth. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, um, who lived in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, saw God who is the divine being who set the earth into motion. Um, you know, one of my, my personal favorites, um, the guy who founded the the Tuskegee Institute, uh, George Washington Carver. Um, and George Washington Carver would get up at five o'clock in the morning and he would pray. And it was, it was in his prayer time that he was asking God about himself and about his being and about his deity that he, he asked God about the peanut and God showed him over 500 different ways to break down the peanut into polymers and fibers. And we not only get peanut butter, but we get all these different peanut products. Um, and then we get sweet potato products and all these things. It was in his prayer time that these things came about, that they were made unto him. These are scientists, great scientists, great scientists who, who shifted the direction of history that, that shifted the, 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 the direction of humanity, who spared things up into motion and these guys uh these guys pointed back to the the great creator god the the all-knowing all-sufficient god and if these great scientists of that day who made great waves and did great things could point back to god it is only in recent history that we've seen science take an anti-god path and for it to take an anti-christ or an anti-god path it makes me believe that satan is setting the stage for for him to rule or well, God is allowing him to set the stage for him to take over before we see Armageddon take place. Now, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, this is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation. Okay. Now, remember I told you Zion was where God said he would rule. Um, Babylon was Satan's headquarters from the beginning at the Tower of Babel. Now, in Genesis 41, we, 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 we note that when something happens twice, when we see Babylon has fallen, it's fallen, it means that it's, gonna, it's going to happen quickly. It's not going to be a big delay like we've been seeing the 70th week of Daniel. Now, the way fallen, fallen is written in the past tense, uh, it's, 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 it's the actual tense that is written originally is written as if it's already happened. I think we can ascribe that to the fact that God is um, outside of time and that he's already appeared in the end from the beginning. Um, a lot of people get confused about Babylon, though, because, you know, it was, you know, because Babylon um, was destroyed. It was destroyed um, when Persia conquered Babylon in 537 B.C. But I want you to remember back to history class, Persia, when they conquered Babylon in 537 BC, they never took control of Babylon. I mean, they did take control, but they never conquered. Like they never, there was never a battle. It was a peaceable transfer of power. And Babylon, um, when, when, when they conquered, when Persia pa conquered Babylon, what they did is they made that their secondary headquarters. Um, they were conquered without a battle, battle. Now we're talking about a literal city on the, the banks of the Euphrates, uh, prophecy says that it, it'll be destroyed where it can never be inhabited. It's been inhabited since that time until now, which tells us that what he's talking about has yet to happen. Um, but that does not negate the fact that God has already counted it as done. Okay. Moving on verse nine. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. 
It's those who take the mark and worship the beast. Now, I want you to see that there's a specific political and spiritual commitment, that this is not something that you're going to take by accident. Okay? This is not, this is not a, um, um, something that this is not your credit card. This is not your cell phone. This is not something that you are taking on accident. This is a, a conscientious decision. Okay. A conscientious, conscientious political and spiritual commitment that you're going to make. And you're going to bow down and worship probably because he's wowed you or he's amazed you or, or any of those things. It's, it's going to be something that you're going to be very conscious of when you make the decision, because it's one of those things that you cannot come back from. Okay. I want us to get familiar with this wine of wrath. You know, that's the cup of God's anger being poured out. And we're getting ready to move to those bowls of wrath. Um, so I think it's interesting to see that. But I want you to see that the same people who take this wrath are going to have to deal with God. Um, and you're going to have to deal with God void of mercy. Void of grace. And, and, and he's going to pour it out because they've chosen to worship the adversary. They've chosen to worship Satan, made the decision to. Let's move on. Verse 11. And the smoke of, of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. This pun this punishment is eternal. And I think we kind of wrestle with this. We, we, we struggle to understand it. We, we can understand living eternity in heaven. We like the idea of streets paid with gold and every day being like Sunday. We, 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 have, we are okay with living in paradise for eternity, but we struggle with this idea that somebody would deal with anguish day in and day, die, day out. We wrestle with this. We don't understand this. That's why universalism, you know, is a thing. And that's why um, a lot of times they, um, people want to make a way for others to make it in, even if they reject Jesus. And and I know that this is not one of the, the, the prettiest parts of Christianity, but this, this is incentive for you to give your life and your heart to him, to let him be Lord of your life. Um, this is, this is incentive for you to be like, you know what? I can't be burned up <laughs> and I would rather not be turned tormented forever because I guess we, we always look to hope, especially the Christian. I would even say the person we always look to hope. We, we always try to find the hope in the situation, but what happens when the hope is removed? I told you chapters ago that the, the, the great restraint of the Holy spirit was gone, but what happens when, when, when the punishment, you know, we're talking, I think, about Gehenna. We're talking about hell. Um, that those who worship the mark, the, the, the beast and take his mark are headed for hell. Okay, I don't think the fire is symbolic. I think, I think we're talking about hell here. Uh, Matthew 13, 36, 42. I, I, I think you can go there. I, I, don't think, I don't think God is mixing mercy with his judgment. He is pouring out his anger. He's pouring up out his disgust. He's pouring out his frustration on mankind. That how could you have a perfect God and choose a knockoff? How? How could you become contented with the knockoff? Be all right with being only half of or portion of. And after time after time, I've tried to give you truth and you couldn't do it. You couldn't see it. You couldn't receive it. And so there is a punishment of sorts. 
Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. Oh, I just read that. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of the Lord, of, of God and faith of Jesus. I kind of think that verse is there as a breather of sorts. <laughs> I, I think that it's, it's a breather of sorts, a reminder that God is a loving God, although he's pouring out wrath, he's pouring out judgment, and that he's being harsh. But is he really being harsh when he's given thousands of years to get it right? Even after he removes the church, he sends witnesses down to declare truth. Even after all of this, he sends an angel to say, fear God. Even after the church is gone and the 144,000 have been sealed. And as the 144,000 have gotten this, this gotten all these people to turn your heart remains hard and you choose to worship Satan. Ah, and I don't necessarily always understand that one. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily understand how after opportunity after opportunity, you can reject truth. To me, that's, that's you've, you've become reprobate on purpose because evidence is there. Y'all watch those witnesses get up from the dead after y'all were happy about their death. And then they rose up from heaven. That tells you that something is up. But you got to believe truth. You have to choose to believe truth. And that's it. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, right. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, ye say, saith the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Now we can presume that this is the fourth angel. And that also that this is a comparison to Philippians 1. Okay. Um, he said, I heard a voice of heaven saying to be blessed are the dead, which die in the Lord from henceforth. I think that this is, you know, from, you know, Paul is talking to the Philippian church. He says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh that this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am straight betwixt to having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in flesh is more needful for you. And for having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the fur for your furtherance and the joy of your faith. This, this is an interesting promise. Okay. Interesting promise. He's to not be concerned with death. You know, if the rapture was yet coming, true believers um, would have been, you know, I'm sorry. If the, if the rapture was yet coming, true believers, hey, you know, they had been called up some time ago. But I think that this, you know, blessed are they who die in the, in the Lord from henceforth. Um, that those of us who are dead in, in Christ are good. <laughs> we are covered. We are good. But even, even, even there, there is a promise that it should you turn and should you not take the mark there is this, you're fine. You're, you don't have to be concerned with hell. You don't have to be concerned with your soul perishing. You don't have to be concerned with any of those things. Hmm. You know, this is the, but this is, this is the same problem. This, 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 this thing that this verse is trying to clear up is the same problem that the Thessalonian church had. They thought they had missed the rapture because up until that point, the, the persecution had come from the Jews and then Nero gets into power. And when Nero gets into power, he starts burning Christians at parties for entertainment. He, the, 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 um, the suffering shifts from the Jews to the world, persecuting them. And so they assume that Nero, who was a world leader, that he was the Antichrist and they were being persecuted. And so they said that Paul has taught us wrong. 
He came and he taught us wrong. And then in between the first Thessalonian letter and the second Thessalonian letter, there's this fake letter that gets out there. And this fake letter is 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 affirming some of the stuff that they they thought. And so Paul has to send a rebuttal letter to the fake letter, and that's when we get Second Thessalonians. But they thought they had missed the rapture, or Paul had taught them wrong, and either way they were frustrated. And so what he's saying, I think he's 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 teaching or he's insinuating, is that 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 the church is gone at this point. All right, the church is gone at this point. Don't be confused. This is this is post this is post chaos all right post chaos oh this is post rapture i apologize not post chaos this is post rapture and since this is post rapture i need you to understand that you've you you that die in christ are good you're fine okay and even if i'm misinterpreting the scripture if you did die in christ you're still sealed okay but i believe this is post rapture this is my belief. I believe this is post-rapture. Verse 14. And lo- I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. That cloud. Where do we see that cloud? We saw that cloud. You remember we saw that cloud when the children of Israel were walking through the, the uh, wilderness, and there was a cloud that was leading them. The Shekinah glory was leading them. Um, behold a white cloud, behold the Shekinah glory. And upon the Shekinah glory, okay, um, this is me helping you understand, sat the Son of Man. Same thing is described in Matthew 24, 30. The same cloud that was a, that was that led them and was a pillar of night, fire by night, having on his head a golden crown. This is Stephanos, this is the ruling crown. This is this is this is God. This is Jesus. And having a sharp sickle. Here he is. He's presenting himself. There's heinous, there's heinous things there. God is pouring out his wrath, but the Shekinah glory has shown up. Okay? The, the, the presence of God has shown up. And now that the presence of God has shown up, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice and on the, on the, on the, to him that sat on the cloud, to him, to Jesus, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time for, the, for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, I think this harvest we're talking about is very idiomatic of the wheat and the tares. Now, the wheat and the tares is one of my favorite parables. Um, the wheat and the tares, I want you to think of it in, in this way. Um, well, actually, no, you don't have to think of it this way because he gives us an interpretation. Um, the wheat and the tares, you know, the weeds, somebody sowed weeds among the, the good wheat. And he says, let them grow together. And when the time is right, I'll pull the, wheat, the weeds up and I'll pluck them up and I'll throw them out to be burned. So we're talking about burning here a couple of verses ago. And the angel comes out and as the Shekinah glory shows up and Jesus is sitting there, he said, it's time to reap. And so he says, you know, and you remember, we, we tie, tie that into the, the last, the seven letters of the seven churches. He's saying it's time to reap. All the folks that would not turn, all those weeds that were among the good, it's time for them to go. It's time for them to go. And I know that's heavy and that's, that's dark. And it's, it's kind of crazy. But I also want you to notice that the person doing the harvesting here is Jesus. The harvest isn't really our job. Our job is to sow and declare the truth. Our job is to teach the word of God. Our job is to live in a way that they can see Jesus Christ. And he will harvest the souls. Who turns is not about how well you could teach. And can I be honest with y'all? That has been one of my things I had, I've, I've, and it's happened a couple of times, but but one time really bothered me. I had this girl 
who had been in my Bible studies for a long time, and um, she changed religions. And I was the last person she heard preach before she did, she left. And she was the last, she had come, she had been coming to, to our, our youth church service, and she left, not the church, but the faith after me. And it bothered me. Oh, it bothered me. It bothered me. But the truth of the matter is, it's not my job to harvest. My job is to plant and to water and to fertilize. And the harvest is left up to God. The harvest is left up to God. Okay. Now, I want you to, I want you to also, we, we, I, just want, I want you to see what happens here. Verse 16, he says, And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. He gathered the weeds and he threw them out. He took the, and he took the wheat and he brought them to heaven. And verse 17 says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar. Oh, yeah, another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he having a sharp sickle. So he shows up, he comes out of heaven. And in verse 18, another angel came out of the altar, which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had a sharp sickle saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this is a different harvest. It's not the same harvest we just talked about. You can kind of see a similar, a similar thing going on in Joel 3, Isaiah 63, Zechariah 14, and Isaiah 34. But let's go to Joel 3 real quick, and let's, let's look at it right there. Verse 13, he says, But he, he in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Get you down. The press is full. The flats overfly, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision. Mm. Now, wine of the wrath of God is being about to be poured out. Okay, the wine, the wine of the wrath of God, and so there. See, see, we when I think when we're talking about the harvest in verse fifteen, we're talking about the people being separated. There's a difference between the believer and the non-believer. There's a difference between those with whom he's preserving and those he's not preserving. I think right here, he's plucking up the grapes so that he may shake and press them so that he can pour out his wrath. So I think he's taking a tally of what he's going to punish. He's taking a tally of what he's pouring out. What do they deserve? The wine of the wrath. The valley, the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Who decided for me? And when they didn't decide for me, what did they do? What do I owe them? Verse 19. And the angel is thrust in his sickle unto the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. All of this is in preparation of the bowls of wrath of God. The grape vines have a lot to do with the wrath of God. You heard of the grapes of wrath? Unless <laughs> it's not to be confused with Jesus being the true vine, though. Okay. They, you know, I want, I want to make sure that we make that clear. It's not, we don't want to confuse it there. But what we do want to do is that I want you to see that there is a difference. You know, he, he pulls up his, his, the wheat and the tares, he separates them and get, prepares them to be burned. But there is also, before they're burned, how hot do I need to make it? And I know that this is a rough one to understand because we're used to Satan allowing wrath. Satan causing chaos. Satan causing suffering. But when you reject God, 
when you reject God, there's a penalty. You know, he talks about it in, in Romans 1. He says, and he turned them over to the due penalty within themselves. Right now, he's turning them over to the penalty for not choosing him. He's given them thousands of years to get it right. Thousands of years to see his glory. Just go look up at the stars. Go look out of sight. And I know we struggle with this. We struggle with this. How could a loving God? But but you, I think the problem is that we don't understand the, the love of a father. A lot of us don't understand the love of the father. And maybe we don't understand the love of the father because you all don't know what, what a good father looks like. But I, I've been blessed to have a good father. And I've been blessed to see what that looks like. And while my dad is my biggest cheerleader, my dad supports me like nobody's business. My dad will move heaven and earth for me when I'm wrong. He tells me I'm wrong. And then if should I be wrong again, he tells me I'm wrong. And after a while, there are penalties that I have to inhibit. There are punishments well, that I had to, to, to deal with because he's my daddy. And see, love does not stop at making you feel good. I think we have this warped understanding of what love looks like. You know, love, 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 the whom the Lord loves, he chastens so that it doesn't get to this place that you do not have to incur the wrath of God, that you do not get stuck in this nasty uh, vortex of the wrath of God. Could you imagine the most powerful being in the universe being angry and not holding himself back? Because at this point, up until this point, he's held himself back. He's retained himself. He's restrained himself. But here we are. The most powerful being in the world is angry. And he's plucking up the wine press for what he's going to pour out on the earth. He's removed those who don't deserve it. He's searched the hearts of men. And he's getting ready to do what's been due for thousands of years. And the tally of sin has only gotten greater and greater. Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, but the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now this is a preview of what's happened coming about to happen in the, in the chapters to come. But I want you to get get this image in your mind. This 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 blood that came out of the wine press, it creates a river of sorts because it's 4 feet deep. Space it is 4 feet deep and roughly 180 miles long. Hard to imagine this being idiomatic and and I like again, I feel like I say this every episode. I don't plan to be there and I don't want to see it. I don't, I'm not interested in seeing this river of blood. But it's, it's hard to imagine this being idiomatic. But ironically, that's the difference from Megiddo to Basra. Where all the nations of the earth are going to this war that we're about to talk about. Most of us expect this war to be nuclear. You know, we are amazed by the 70,000 people that were wrapped out in Hiroshima. Or we're, we're, we're amazed by the 105,000 that were wrapped out um, in, in various other wars. But we often forget the Civil War. You know, the Civil War um, consumed more American lives than both World Wars, Korea and Vietnam combined. And the technology wasn't all that great. And so if men are capable of wiping out that many men without technology, can you imagine what technology 
will bring to this fight. They attempt to make war on God. Now, if God created angels who are indestructible, let's just be realistic here, and he's indestructible, when they wage war on God, they're essentially waging war on themselves. They're creating genocide on themselves because it doesn't matter what they do or what they attempt to do. They're not going to be able to fight on this level. And um, I think that's, 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 um, that says a lot. Now, when we step back from this passage, we step back from this chapter because we're, we're coming to an end. I want us to think about this, that most Jews are atheists. You know, the average Jew is agnostic um, when they call themselves agnostic Jews. In other words, they know the script, what the scripture requires of them, but they don't believe in his deity. With that understood, that sets the stage for there to be a reject. There's a rejection of God by his people. But let's not make apology for God's judgment. You know, the only remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. And I know that this is a rough passage to understand and it's a rough passage to wrap your head around because we have heard about this loving, merciful, gracious God. And this idea that he would un unleash his, his wrath on the world, that he would release his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world is rough. But I don't, we don't, I don't think we need to make an apology for God's judgment because the only remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. And if you, if you renounce or reject the only remedy, if you choose not to listen to or to receive the only remedy, you're falling to the, the only penalty, to the penalty of sin. You're, the penalty of sin is the wrath and death and ultimately hell. And I know that that just does not sound all evolved and that's not the language that I'm supposed to be speaking with. And, and various scholars would suggest that I should be more refined, but it is the truth of the word of God. And I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't share that with you. If I didn't tell you the truth about that. And I would be a terrible steward of the word of God if I didn't tell you that. And so we see this, this is not, this is not idiomatic. This is not, uh, this is not me just making stuff. This is me telling you that the only remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. You can't live it right without him. You can't give it right without him. You can't love it right without him. And with Jesus, in Jesus alone, in Jesus, simply by himself, you get atonement for sin and you don't have to endure this. But I know that there are several groups that want you to understand, want you to believe it, that if you just be good and just do good, that you'd be all right. But I have to ask the question, what is good? Because apart from this canon of scripture and apart from some form of morality, what is good? Because good is subjective. And you know what? There's a dawn coming in Revelation 19 and 21 and, 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 and yet future. And that Jesus is going to reign. He's going to rule. But it's going to get darker. We're about to walk into some chapters that are going to be dark and dismal and bleak. And to the Christian, it's not something that we necessarily want to, want to acknowledge or to accept. But it's truth.
And maybe as a Christian, you do embrace it. And I hope that you do. But as the American, as the person living in, in an evolved society, like we like to believe that we are, this is the truth. Now, whether you accept it, that's, that's you. And the deal with salvation is that it presupposes danger. It's a, it, it understands that, that, that if I do not give my soul to something that I am naturally reprobate, I am naturally sicking, I'm naturally uh, sinful, that I need to deal with my sin problem. And because I need to deal with my sin problem, I need a savior. But see, if you don't acknowledge that you're sick or that you got a problem or that, or any of those, uh, those things, you'll think that you don't. And see, uh, there's another thing is that in Christianity, there is this, this set called universalist. And see, universalism is an error that makes this entire book in need. Why would he include it in the canon of scripture? If he wasn't going to pour out his wrath and that nobody was going to, was going to have to endure this and that the blood, while I believe that the blood, the blood is, is total, it is complete. I believe that it does, um, all that is set out to do. I believe that the blood is powerful. I believe that the blood is, is, is wonderful, but I need you to understand that if you reject Christ, it's not applied to you. It's only applied when you accept him as your savior. And that makes me ask the question is without hope, what do you cling to? You know, I've been, I've been having to talk to have conversations with people about suicide lately, but not mine. I've, I'm definitely, I've, I've actually, thank God that that, that doesn't really hang by my house. And I, I thank you in Jesus name that it will remain that way. But I've been having to have a lot of conversations about suicide lately. And, and, and the whole act of suicide negates this idea of hope. And so I can understand it for somebody who's not saved, but I struggle to understand what, what is it and how does it happen to somebody who is. But in a world where there is no hope, what do you cling to? Do you cling to a false sense of hope? A lie? What, what do you cling to? And I, I just, I, 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 because it, it, without the Christ, and I know that I'm, it sounds like I'm doing an altar call, but I'm, this, is, this is the essence of this book. The essence of this chapter and this book is that without Christ, this is what your lot will be. And I, I'm not here to preach a, a fear of God. I'm here to preach to you grace because he has offered grace. He has offered to wipe away everything that you've done and everything that you'll do and to not hold it to your account. You just have to accept that he's Jesus and that he's the savior. He's your keeper. Now, I want us to also understand that um, physical death deals with the separation of the soul and the body. Okay, so the body dies, the soul, you know, it's separated. But spiritual death is a separation of the soul from God. And it's scary that we're dealing here with all these people who are spiritually dead. But we get to make the decision whether God will judge us or not whether we're accepted or rejected re rejected, or whether we choose ourselves, whether or not we have hope. It's completely in your arms. And so when we teach this gospel, when we teach this truth, when we teach this good news, the ball is completely in your court. 
It's not about what you're going to do. It's not about how you're going to live. You know, I think if you take on Christ, if you accept Christ in your heart, you ought to look like him. But it's not, salvation does not boil down to that. Salvation boils down to, is my soul apart from God or is it with God? And if my soul is with God, judgment is not mine because I'm covered in blood. Well, guys, that was Revelation 14. Tune back in with us, uh, and we're going to hit Revelation 15, and we're going to keep trugging along. I want you to stay encouraged. I want you to read this for yourself um, because I love the Word of God, but I believe that God can, too, give you revelation. And if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. Until next time, I'm Reverend Kojo. This has been Revelation 14.